Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to Dr. Julie Peekman about her book titled Liberty in London, Sex in the 18th Century Metropolis, published by Reaction. As you might expect from the title, um, the book investigates what's happening in terms of sex, sex lives, and what involvement women have in this uh, from, you know, the long 18th century, uh, which is an incredibly helpful investigation because it takes us behind a lot of the kind of myths we might have in popular culture about kind of who was a prostitute and what was that like. So, Julie, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to tell us about the real history of this time and place. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I'm Julie Peatman, as you said. Uh, I'm a historian and a fellow at Birkbeck University. Um, I've been working on the history of sexuality now for um, at least 25 years, probably nearer 30. Um, I've examined quite a few books on the subject um, of 18th century pornography, um, six volumes of Hoare's Memoirs, uh, History of Sexual Perversion, which is a book on sexual, what we'd call sexual differences now, um, and Global Sexualities. And you can find all this on my website at um, www.juliepeatman.co.uk. Um, I also write for academic journals and national newspapers and popular magazines, um, such as um, Politifique Bar magazine, the BBC History. Um, and also I do um, contribute to television documentaries for um, channels such as Channel 4, BBC, Biography Channel. Um, and most recently, I've worked on a programme called Wooden Kites for the History Channel and a programme for history hit entitled Georgian Pleasures, Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll. Um, I'm now looking for producers to take on my new project, which is on Liberty, Liberty London, Women and Sex in the 18th Century. Mm. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, that very much gives us a great context to start with. Thinking of um, the book kind of in the big picture, before we get into the details, could you walk us through um, the time period that the book covers, the long 18th century, and how you chose the start and end dates for this? 
Right. Well, Libertine London comes along um, 18th century, which is roughly 1680 to 1830. I wanted to include the Georgians. Um, and I, I first started um, getting interested in prostitution um, and the history in my first degree. Um, but this was a Victorian women. And by the time I took my MA, I was focusing on 18th century women as, as little research had been done on them. Um, I wanted to look not just at prostitutes, but the position of women who'd had sex outside of mar- marriage and how they were denigrated uh, and basically verbally abused for indulging in sex, um, for love, desire, or um, behaviour that men might um, men might display with no sexual diminution to them. Um, so it's the sort of misogyny and, and um, the overriding double standard which made women's lives a misery that I really wanted to investigate. Um, and I, I wanted to dig beyond the usual tropes of, of jolly, bawdy London and to reveal um, the, these underlying and deep-seated uh, attacks on the so-called libertine women um, and show how they were manipulated in certain roles and the limitations that were placed on these women um, who had sex outside of marriage, which forced them into using their sexuality to secure a place for themselves in life. And that would apply to whatever the station the women had been born into. Um, and I suppose what, what we'd now call rape culture was insidious in this society, more so in London, of course, um, which is why I chose to study the capital. Um, so really, I, I just wanted to explore how these women had to make up their own set of rules to deal with these limitations that were placed on them um, and the roles that they were forced into and how they developed their own ruses um, to deal with it. Um, and in spite of all the verbal and physical attacks, they fought back using their own their wit and their guile and anything they'd got to survive in a man's world. That's definitely a fascinating uh, research topic and it makes sense in that context, uh, the years. So thank you for taking us through that. Um, staying in the big picture, can we talk about literally the first word of this whole thing, the first word of the title, libertine? What did this term mean during this time period? And to what extent was it a different meaning if it was attached to a man versus a woman? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because this is something that's always bugged me. Um, the term libertine um, was was very widespread in the 18th century, but it was um, also often used in the 17th century to describe a certain type of upper-class uh, man who was sexually free with his behaviour. Um, it's defined in the Oxford English Dictionary as a person, um, especially a man, who freely indulges in sexual pleasure without regard to moral principles. Um, and um, it was it was really a word that was banded around um, to describe the sexual freedom and philosophical free thinking of French aristocratic men in the ancient regime. Um, all writers of pornographic novels such as Crebillon, Diderot, La, Gloss and um, Dessart, but it was also common usage in England by the 18th century. Um, however, um, it the world... Libertine did include women, um, but the, it was quite it, the whole idea of libertine women differed greatly from their male counterparts, um, and this was um, their sexual freedom was also often connected less um, to it was also connected to sexual desire, but less so to um, sexual um, encounters they needed to survive. And of course, women um, in, in 
this situation in the 18th century, in the 18th century, you'd be forced into um, a position of, of, of perhaps making their living from the sex trade. Um, they didn't always receive the pleasure from their sexual experience that men did. Um, it was often just a simply, uh, simply a, a way of making a living. Um, others, of course, might uh, wallow in the sexual pleasure, and we've we've read about um, this in some of the um, the memoirs that I spoke about earlier. Um, and they, they they might very well follow their heart's desire and and give everything to the men they love, but um, this still made them dependent on men and kept women um, kept women became that um, they still lost their freedom. So um, although liberty women were often free sexually from the moral conventional codes, their libertinism did come at a price for them. And we can see a vast gap opening up when the term liberty was applied to men and, and to women. Whereas liberty men were um, considered genial rapes uh, and, and it didn't um, affect their reputation too much, liberty women were seen as immoral. And this sexual um, laxity which um, in men was a proof of their manhood and virility, was condemned in women. Um, and usually these women who'd indulged um, or been um, called sexually incontinent, incontinent, incontinent were actually um, had all, all, always had derogatory terms applied to them, such as whores, harlots, or strumpets. Um, and women working in the sex industry uh, were often called libertines um, and... Uh, various contemporary commentators would write tracks on them, denouncing them. Um, so therefore, if we look at liberty, it's quite an imprecise and ambiguous word. Um, and we shouldn't be applied to women um, that lightly. actually means something quite different um, to women when applied to women. Men's sexual activities were obviously given much more license. Um, and this was um, a... a, a we encounter a full blossoming sexual culture after the restoration. Um, the male libertine was largely um, unconstrained and to a large extent, these men were let off the hook as regards um, any sort of se sexual conduct outside of marriage. Um, and unless it was a reputable woman, of course, and or, or with another man, uh, and that's when men would come under um, scrutiny. Right. Um, so for the idea for libanism for men which had started in the youth as possibly sowing their own, their wild oats, as we call it now, for young women, um, it invariably meant a ruined reputation and ostracization from respectable society. Hmm. No, a very different application indeed. So thank you for illuminating that for us. I'd like to ask you to tell us a bit more about women who did work in the sex trade. Um, can you tell us a bit about kind of what kinds of women undertook this work and to what extent it was sort of something that once you were in that sort of work you stayed there or was it something more transient? Oh, all kinds of women turned to prostitution um, to make a living, some more successful than others. Um, throughout their lives the status might change, they might start off as um, courtesans or whores of fashion and end up the street walkers as their, their looks faded um, and they became less popular. Um, or they might start off as street workers and work their way up to become courtesans, which indeed some women did. Others who came from a um, uh, background of poverty um, might start off as street walkers and never ro ro um, 
make any development from that position. And of course, these were the women who um, were at the lowest station in the sex trade. Um, and their job was to pick up men on the streets or in public places. Um, so um, the women also might uh, work in, in um, back alleys or the streets of t the back streets or, or taverns. Um, and some had um, dismal lodging, lodgings where they take men back for sex. But generally speaking, we can see um, when we've examined prostitution that it was a transient profession for some women who weaved in and out of the trade depending on the work available elsewhere. Um, and for example, seasonal employment meant women fell on hard times when har the harvest was over or when a theatre closed after a season um, or simply when work dried up for them. Um, and then they may, may take up prostitution on a spasmodic basis. Um, but some of the, uh, the, the work opportunities for single women were, of course, few and far between. But jobs, there were jobs in the dress trade, um, mainly um, in the, as milliners and mantua makers. But indeed, these women who um, made items of women's clothing were also particularly known for um, their sidelining prostitution or for fixing men up with other women. Um, but we can see domestic service um, was very often seen as responsible for forcing many young girls onto the streets because once they lost their jobs, obviously, they also lost their, their homes. Um, and so it was um, very often recognised that domestic service, because of its precarious position, meant that um, female servants were often turned out of the master's house. Um, say their son seduced or molested them, and, and once this, the, the female servant fell out of favour with their employers, they wouldn't get, get a reference um, and were left in an extremely vulnerable position. Um, so, but in, in this book, I cover all sorts of women who might be seen as libertine, libertine women, not just prostitutes, um, but also um, I cover adulteresses and, and um, actresses as well, such as Peg Woffington. Um, no, th thank you for explaining all of that. Um, I think we don't necessarily link some of these factors, like what work was available with what the gaps were, how that might change seasonally. So it's very helpful to see the pieces all come together. Um, thinking about kind of then once the women are in undertaking sex work or um, whether permanently or not uh, being prostitutes, what was the kind of reaction from the police from this? What role did the police play when it came to prostitution in this time and place? Well, at, at this period, the police in a prostitution in London was quite uneven and spasmodic. Um, and it was reliant on a mixture of watchmen, beagles and constables. constables. There's no central system of policing in existence. So each parish was really left very much to its own devices. Um, an Act of Parliament, for example, in 1735 allowed for the appointment of paid watchmen in certain areas such as St George's in Hanover Square. Um, and this was fairly typical um, that it hired 38 watchmen, four beadles and a watchhouse keeper. Um, and we saw a, a series of further watch acts um, virtually in every parish, parish in London. Um, who'd established their own watch patrol by the end of the century. Um, so it's constables who were responsible for the watch, and they possessed the power to arrest any criminals, including vagrants and the idle and disorderly, which was um, the, um, the category that uh, prostitution fell into. 
Um, indeed, um, the constables had powers to arrest anybody um, who was uh, offended, loosely defined sets of behaviours. Um, but this would include any vagrants, prostitutes and disorderly persons. Um, so um, the charges that, that what I found is the charges applied to these prostitutes were often quite broad and, and vague. And it ranged from vagrancy to lewd or disorderly behaviour or simply being a lewd woman. Um, and, and an example of that, I'll give is Mary Dixon was, um, in quotes, charged on oath for being the lewd woman and for being picked up by a gentleman in the street late last night um, and could, could, no, could give no account of herself or her lawful way of living and have no legal settlement, but in a common vagrant. So in other words, you know, there the, the, the wasn't a, a really a strict definition. Um, so the police, you know, were fairly free, had a fairly free hand. Hmm. What happened then to those women who were picked up by the police and sent to prison? Uh, well, if a prostitute was was discovered, her punishment um, was to be paraded round the town in a, a, a horse-drawn cart um, and placed in a pillory where she might be pelted with garbage. Um, however, if, if it was a first misdemeanor, she might just be given a, a small fine. Um, but when they continued, um, they were more like and, and caught again. They're more likely to be sent to Bridewell Prison for a stint of hard labour. Um, possibly hacking hemp like we've seen in um, Hogarth's depiction in A Harlot's uh, Progress. Um, and of course, poor uh, whores with fewer means to pay fines couldn't escape a sentence or, or bribe themselves to get off the hook. Um, prostitutes were also um, subjected to public floggings um, and the women were stripped to the waist and whipped. But this became less common from about 1770s onwards and was eventually abolished altogether in 1817. Um, and of course, the, once inside the prison, the prisons were dreadfully unhygienic, with no place to wash and just filthy straw to sleep on. And usually that um, you'd get covered in lice um, and there was um, cockroaches and rats all over the place. And this, of course, was why typhus was rampant. And if you actually ended up in one of these jails, he might um, end up with tithless. So it, the only way out really was to pay a good bribe um, and you might get better, for a hefty sum, you might get some better uh, lodgings. Hmm. Not a great situation to be in, um, in that situation. No. <laughs> no, but thank you for describing it. Um, speaking of lodgings and sort of living conditions, what were brothels like in London at this point? And how did local and national government, as you mentioned, police kind of had a lot of leeway. How did local authorities react to brothels? Um, London brothels were obviously flourishing in the 18th century and they offered all sorts of um, services. Um, and so much so that they became a major problem for the local authorities. Um, some of the most salubrious sex establishments existed around Mayfair and where, where they were aimed at the high end of the market where titled men and wealthy businessmen would pay out the odds for um, the most desirable women. Um, but in turn, um, they could, that you'd have more chance of picking your own better class of clientele there. Um, and at the lower end of the market, um, often they were often run by boards clapped out from their own days on the town. 
um, and they offered them all um, the poor horse uh, who were struggling to keep themselves alive um, and very often paid a pittance, um, but at least they had some kind of protection and a roof over their heads. Um, the public generally hated boards as they were responsible for corrupting young girls um, um, and the authorities were um, keen to shut down boarding houses which were the most disruptive but they weren't particularly effective. Um, I, I, there's cases where the church, when church, church wardens and overseers became concerned about certain um, sexual anarchy on the doorstep, they'd, they'd call meetings to discuss how to suppress the brothels, particularly around Covent Garden. But little was done in the long run, as um, the following century, the same area would be found clogged back to back with taverns, inns and boardy houses, all running illicit sex for sale. Um, but the authorities seem more keen on shutting down homosexual brothels and, and most of our listeners will probably be um, knowledgeable about Mother Clapp, who ran um, a homosexual brothel. And she was um, in, in Field Lane in Holborn and she was ordered to stand in the pillory in uh, Smithfield and sentenced to two years in prison. That is uh, quite a raucous, I suppose, picture um, painted there. So thank you for taking us through um, that sort of environment. I, I'd love to maybe pick up a bit on what you were saying earlier in terms of the long time period and the different aspects of um, the 18th century that you talk about in the book. Could you maybe help us understand how the image of the prostitute, given how prevalent it was with the answers you've just described, how the image of the prostitute changed over the time period you cover in the book and why do you think it changed in these ways sure um it it did it, it changed the image of the prostitute changed over the 18th century um and the prevalent idea which had, had been established early the idea of the brazen whore gradually gave way to that of the seduced maiden um although you do see that sometimes these images would run um concurrently Unmarried women who'd had sex um, were no longer necessarily seen as insatiable vixens any longer, um, but rather as, as prey who'd been targeted um, by lascivious men. Um, and these men were seen to take advantage of, of vulnerable women. So um, women in prostitution were not necessarily um, any longer considered as lewd, lewd harlots who'd enticed men into sex, um, but were seen as um, more of vic victims of circumstances, really. Um, there was, um, and the reason for that was probably because there was a soft, a softening of sentiment towards young women who'd been seduced, uh, and it, it led to greater understanding of the different reasons why women ended up in in prostitution. Um, and we can see by the middle of the the second half of the eighteenth century, um the image of the woman as victim was entrenched in novels such as um, Samuel Richardson's Clarissa. Um, and the idea also permeated in, in men's magazines like The Rambler, um, who uh, were starting to talk about the need to rescue prostitutes. Um, so the idea was permeating society in general as well. And this can be seen in the founding of the first Magdalene Hospital uh, for penitent prostitutes in London in 1758 um, and the formulation of the belief that prostitutes could be rescued from vice. Um, the person who set that up um, was Robert Dingley, who was the director of the Bank of England 
together with um, a chap called Jonas Hannaway, who was the commissioner of the Victualin office. Uh, and they um, established what they saw as a safe retreat for prostitutes, where they might be rescued rather than sending them to a house of correction which is uh, or prison, which was what had happened previously. And I believe that many of the women had turned to prostitution because of men's failures and men's um, rape or, or seduction rather than um, any choice of their own. Uh, there was also the, the philanthropist jo jo Jonas Hannaway, um, who'd set up this, the Madeline, helped to set up the Madeline Hospital, um, wrote a tract called the Thought Thoughts on the Plan from uh, Magdalene House. Um, and he suggested there weren't, these women were not necessarily from the labouring poor, but the daughters poor tradesmen put into to domestic service. So again, we see the idea coming out that um, these women probably started off respectable. Um, and this was something that was attractive to the, the, the middling sort um, and the gentry. So people would back these institutions um, and the idea of, of rescuing women um, so that they could go into the hospitals. But they did, in fact, uh, were seen to fail, um, mainly because of the structure of the hospitals and the sort of hierarchy that was established in the institution. Um, and um, also women were not given the support once they came out, so fell, fell in, back into prostitution as the only way that they knew how to make a living. Um, so, yeah, that, that, I think that was one of the reasons that the, the whole of the idea um, of what, what, how, people had got, how women had got into prostitution were, was shifting and people were becoming more aware of the plight of women um, who had been seduced or raped or somehow been debauched by men unwillingly. Hmm. Hmm. No, that, that's a really interesting change. Um, thank you for explaining it to us. Speaking of being aware of women engaged in sex work, um, courtesans are a pretty big thing during this period. Um, very much celebrities in ways that we might even recognize today. Why was it that this sort of courtesan celebrity culture happened, do you think, at this time and this place? I think a lot of it was to do with the fact that they could now get a much higher profile. Um, changes in technology had allowed for mass printing and circulation of news, and courtesans were at the centre um, of this new emerging cult of celebrity. The public were call calling for lots of more information um, as they heard about courtesans and their love affairs um, and revelations about the scandalous behaviour. Um, so just like now, um, people wanted to read about what was happening um, to people's sex lives. Um, and readers clamoured for domestic details as well, um, both their, uh, not just the public lives, but the private lives as well. So there, any nuggets they could find on them, um, particularly sexual, sexually intimate details, um, were reported in, in, in these um, gentlemen's magazines or in um, small tracts of pamphlets. Um, there was um, the, uh, even their daily activities became fodder for um, gossip columns. Um, and these would, th th this would come out in newspapers and pamphlets, ladies' magazines, and even the full-length books I talked about, the horse memoirs, which were very often not exactly true stories of the, the women's lives 
but um, had it had added uh, titillating fictional anecdotes just for the uh, prurient readers. Um, and so this increased visibility of courtesans and actresses meant that they sort of became public property and um, a person's private life was no longer safe. Um, so um, the libertine women who've made a name for themselves, either from their beauty or reputation, um, became the centre of this public attention. Um, and, and the masses just developed a, a fascination with them. And the distinction between good and bad celebrities was, was quite blurred um, because they, they just became glorified figures in certain public areas. Um, and, and the other thing that um, added to this was that portraits that had been made um, became available in print. So people like um, Reynolds, who, who painted Kitty Fisher, who was one of the leading courtesans um, of her day, um, that painting was made into a mezzotint um, and was available in all shops all over London. So it's a bit like um, Madonna having her, um, her face on, on girls' magazines and that sort of thing. Um, and Hogarth painted Lavinia Fenton as Polly Peachum when she was playing in um, the Vegas Opera. And that had become increasingly popular. And of course, that, that there was lots and lots of um, copies made of it, so people could buy it and worship Lavinia Fenton as a as their new heroine. So yeah, it was a, a combination of um, uh, technology and, and printing, um, which made images of these women uh, much more available. Hmm. No, that that makes sense. It's all coming together um, at this moment. I'd love to ask you about something that um, we've mentioned a few times, but I think kind of deserves a bit more investigation. Can you tell us about the ways in which um, sexual violence and sexual harassment varied based on class at this point? Sure. Um, obviously, the lower down the social class you were, the more likely you were to be open to harassment and threats of sexual violence. Um, and this was because you were um, more prone Poorer people were more. Um, they had to had to go out to try and find a living, uh, and women were more a, in public spaces than um, richer women. Um, and streetwalkers, particularly walking out in public places uh, like streetwalkers at night, um, when they were out, um, they they were obviously quite vulnerable, and the threat of rape was was ever present. Um, street walkers might gain some protection by going out in pairs, but invariably they had to peel off when, when they picked up a client, which again made them more vulnerable. Um, and different classes of women obviously would expect, therefore, different levels of harassment. Um, and the outcomes of, of pros prosecution would also vary depending on, on a woman's status. Um, and coming back to servants, they were also... Um, at risk of being raped inside the house of their employees by the men who employed them, be it the master of the house or his sons. Um, and of course, young girls were particularly vulnerable. There's one case that I, I've investigated, which is a, a young girl, 16-year-old Sarah Bishop. Um, she'd been in London for about three years and she felt um, she was out of place. That was the quote that she said, I felt out of place. And she had given... Uh, so see, it, it, she was obviously vulnerable to the pe people who, who passed her by. 
um, and she was given employment as a servant by George Carter. And he waited until his wife had gone to bed and then raped the girl. Um, and the case came to trial. Um, and if a case did come to trial, and there were many reasons why they didn't, many of these young girls couldn't really describe what was happening to them as they didn't have the language to express themselves. Um, and of course, also the problem of finance was um, taking a case to court in the first place um, was very often too difficult um, for a poor woman. So um, obviously the higher up the scale, the more money you'd have to bring a case against you. But even then, there'd be more harm to your reputation. So it, it was a sort of double blind situation for, um, for them. Mm. No, very much a tricky position to be in. Speaking of um, the challenges of negotiating contrasting kind of requirements of behavior um, and social expectations, uh, I did want to ask a bit about uh, attitudes in this period around uh, male homosexuality. Uh, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but can you maybe tell us a bit more about the extent to which and maybe why attitudes change over the period of your book regarding men who seek sexual activity with other men? Uh, yes. Uh, in the book, I argued from about 1660 to approximately 1830, um, I found that there was a distinct change of attitude to how many men were treated regarding their um, inclination for sex with, with boys or young men, um, or indeed with adult men. Um, increasingly, men had to protect their image of masculinity um, and evade accusations of, of um, feminist, effeminacy that was uh, being banded about about them. Um, and this meant an increasingly protective balance that they had to, to obtain between their public and private personas. Um, I examined courtier uh, John Harvey, um, William Beckford and Lord Byron and compared them. Um, and their, their worlds apart, because they, 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 John Harvey was um, early 18th century, William Beckford was centre, and Lord Byron um, at the early 19th century. So it, 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 they were um, a good example of how to look at how, how things had changed Um so even though uh, Hervey was a royal courtier in the early 18th century uh, and he was regarded as effeminate and a possible homosexual, he didn't actually come under much attack. Um, he mar married um, and he kept his own counsel and kept his affairs with um, Stephen Fox quite discreet. Um, and so he was more or less left alone because he, he, um, he, didn't, he wasn't blatant about his homosexuality. Uh, it might well have been suspected, but it, it tended to be ignored unless there was a, uh, a, a political reason to pull a person down. Um, those who had um, ex exhibited homosexual leanings um, were, were fine to indulge themselves without too much harm to come coming to them. And another example of that is um, um, the Earl of, of Rochester. Um, there was a possibility of being shunned at court, of course, but the threat of prison didn't seem to have raised too much um, anxiety for either Rochester or Harvey. However, by the time of Byron, the persecution of homosexuals had become the norm and it was now necessary to cover up homosexual activities with much greater care. Um, given Byron's extremes of personality as well as his passion for women, uh, he used and manipulated his image um, and used his vibrant personality to, to show himself 
to be a Lothario, uh, um, and that would um, cover his tracks as a as a pederast. Was he, he once he, he did go off to to Greece, um, he he then could indulge in his his um, love affairs with young young boys quite easily, um, as there was less um, it was less problematic there. It was less um, less ev- in evidence. Um, so yeah, but there's definitely a, a change in how how men were treated, um, and there's much more uh, antagonism uh, towards homosexuality by the end of the century and the, and the early nineteenth century. Hmm. Yet another really interesting change that you trace and examine over the course of the book. So thank you for adding that one on to our conversation and kind of getting right up to the nineteenth century, right, right up to kind of the end of the time period. So. I really just have one final question. Um, you mentioned at the very beginning that you've got a lot of projects that you work on, um, really interesting areas, not just in obviously writing. This book is very new. Is there anything you're looking to work on next or also working on that you'd like to preview? Um, I'm mainly turning my Libertine London into a TV series. Um, that's what I'm, I'm looking for a producer at the moment who w- would take this kind of project on. Mm. Um, so any interested producers, please feel free to contact my agent. Um, um, I'm also uh, working on finding an appropriate pro- appropriate uh, place for the book launch, the launch of the book. Um, so I'm, 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 um, I want to obviously want to celebrate the uh, the launch. Um, and um, I'm writing newspapers and uh, magazine articles for um, uh, based on on the new book. Um, for various magazines, um, and if people were to check out my, what I have done before, um, please do look at my website. Uh, but I'm also doing one one more thing that I'm I'm trying to fit in. Uh, this is going to take years, I think. Um, is I'm working on a musical based on my biography of a woman called Peg Plunkett, who was an 18th century Dublin brothel keeper, uh, an astounding woman who wrote with memoirs. So that's the other. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And anyone who's fascinated by all of this and wants all the details, um, the book is titled Libertine London, Sex in the 18th Century Metropolis, published by Reaction. Julie, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Miranda. I very much appreciate it.